0: Please sit comfortably. Morning, everyone in the room, everyone on Zoom. What I'd like to talk about today is words and concepts and how they impact on our life. And uh, some famous words from Shakespeare's play Hamlet is that Hamlet has asked what are you reading, my Lord? And he replies words, words, words. (laughs) Uh And um, that became the chapter of one of R.H. Bly's um, a chapter in R.H. Bly's book, Sin in English Literature, as a way of clarifying um, uh, the nature of sin practice. Another couple of famous lines from that same play as well, uh, is that Hamlet refers to uh, life being sicklied over by the pale cast of thought. Words, thoughts, same thing. And another famous saying, and I'm paraphrasing it here because I couldn't find it. There is more to life than dreamed of in your philosophy, Horatio. Mm -hmm. Concepts, words etc. again. And if you know something of Shakespeare in the Hamlet play, um, those those words, 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 words said repetitively, um, are sort of indicative of the tragedy that unfolds in the play, because the play is about a man, Hamlet, who's caught up in self-doubt and words and inaction, and, uh, and when he does act, it's very in a very rash kind of manner and he's kind of blown around by circumstances and where we see the same uh kind of metaphor or the same way of explaining this or or understanding it in in zen um in the koan about mood the first koan does a dog have Buddha nature or not in the commentary um, it makes reference to um, when we're courting concepts and words and philosophies, is we're like ghosts clinging to bushes and grasses, like a hungry ghost clinging, you know, sort of a, a, a pale, sickly thing, trying to find some kind of groundedness in life and trying to hold on to things. Bushes and grasses are, are, are terms in... Um, Zen literature that mean concepts or words. So like a, a ghost trying to cling on to things. And as much as it tries to cling on, it can never find any grounding or any satisfaction. So it's kind of just blown around by circumstances all the time. And that that is a metaphor for suffering or dissatisfaction in Buddhism or in in Zen, that, that's the experience we have before we we come to practice that brings us to practice. Or sometimes it's the experience you have when you just come out of your busy world and you, you sit down like to do a Zenkai today and there's words chasing words in the head and there's a kind of a you know mild sense of dissatisfaction and then as you sit there for a while, It's not that you've worked anything out, it's just that the words drop away and you drop below that level into present moment experience, right? And then there's a deeper sense of satisfaction comes with that. In our practice principles, we talk about caught in the self-centred dream, only suffering, holding to self-centred thoughts, exactly the dream. So it makes this link again when we're caught in self-centeredness and dissatisfaction um, and even anguish, right, to thinking and holding on to thoughts and words and concepts are at the root of it. And if you look at the opening words of the Heart Sutra, which is a Buddhist sutra which is very being taken out of the Buddhist um, philosophy is very central to Zen. Um, From the depths of Prajna wisdom, the Bodhisattva of compassion saw into the emptiness of every construct, the emptiness of every word, every mental construct, every philosophy, every way of trying to explain Buddhism or psychology or Zen, right? All of it comes down to just being empty Right? And yet even that is a distortion, because it as it goes on to say, emptiness is form, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. There is emptiness, yet there is form. Everything is one, right? But everything is differentiated at the same time. Mm-hmm. Opposites come together. But the rigid conceptual mind can't get that. It's like it puts everything in categories. Everything's black or it's white. Right? It can't hold together the reality of life and death. You know, that these things go together. That you need these opposites for for everything to exist. Doesn't concepts? Doesn't the conceptual mind kind of doesn't get that? Mm-hmm. And that's often why poetry and metaphor somehow speaks to us more than what philosophy does because it allows us to hold opposites together. Then if we start up Zen practice or we read Zen books we can come across clever little thin sayings like um, don't mistake the map for the territory. Right? Um, or don't mistake the menu for the food, or um, don't mistake the pointing finger for the moon. Well, they're all true. Um, But if they're just clever sayings that you collect, well, it's words, words, words again, isn't it? -hmm. And we have a term for that kind of way of understanding in Zen Buddhism in, in Japan, which I've mentioned a few times before. The Japanese is Zen Kusai, which means Zen stink. Mm-hmm. Or Butsu Kusai, thinking of Buddhism site just knowing the words, but not really having the experience. And a whole Zen practice, when you reflect on it, um, lots of silent, non-verbal, Sitting uh, and um, an interesting way of using words and stories through koans uh, to destroy concepts. Uh, you put those two things together, just long periods of not getting entangled in thought, becoming disentangled from it, letting the thinking mind just settle down into body, into embodied. Experience, momentary experience, without trying to work it out or explain it or philosophise about it. Moments of that, hours of that, weeks of that, you know, over a lifetime, give us a different perspective on what life is about. And uh, and then koans can add another element to that again, which I'll come to a little bit later just to test just exactly how much we are stuck in words or concepts or not, or how much we can be free of them. But don't think of words and concepts as just being um, harmless things. Um, they're like tool. Language is a tool um, and you can use it in a wise way or it can be used unwisely. But it's perhaps not until you do serious end practice um, meditation and/or doing koan work that you realise just entrapped you are by words more than perhaps we ever realised. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Another. Um, well-known English poet William Wordsworth used these famous lines as well. Our meddling intellect misshapes the beauteous form of things we murder to dissect. So we all know otherwise we wouldn't be here today. It's not enough to read books on Zen or Buddhism um, because it'll just entrap you in more philosophical constructs about what life is. They may be they may be useful ones to some degree, but that's where you're trapped. Now, I'm not against people reading books. I read a lot of books too. And um, one of my former teachers, Robert A. Roshi, was a, a scholar and he read a lot and he encouraged us all to read books on sin or good books on sin anyway. And I passed that encouragement on um, it is good to read, providing those books that you read point you back to momentary experience, and point you back to wholeness, and point you back to embodiedness. But if they come a kind of addiction, oh, I, I just need another another explanation. I'll read that book or another one. It's a kind of a, a grasping quality about it trying to find the answers all the time in words. Well, it'll end up being frustrating after a while. And you might end up with a lot of clever words to impress other people with, but your life won't shift in any way into the experiential. Let me, I've said these words before, but they're worth repeating, going over the first koan we use the koan mu, and the case again is a monk, one thinks a young monk, a new monk, asks Joshua does a dog have Buddha nature or not? And Joshu replies, Moo. And then as the first koan, we use that one word to key to our breath, you know, to look to get beyond words, to to cut through words, it's like using a word to cut through words. Mm-hmm. But again if you really look at what the the meaning of that, that story is, in a very simplified way and in a contemporary way of looking at it, and to draw on Joko's um, view of a, a core belief we have about ourselves, that we're not enough in some way, and it drives us. The monk in that story is really saying to his teacher, am I enough? Am I okay, just the way I am? Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I am. Mm -hmm. I've got great doubts that I'm okay, even though I've heard that I am. And Joshua doesn't say, yes, you're fine. You're okay. You're fine. Don't worry. He could have said that that's the kind of thing you would perhaps say to a child, you know, who's in doubt, because children need that kind of encouragement, you know, to grow a a healthy sense of self. But when you're a grown man or a grown woman and you're still walking around thinking, am I enough? Am I okay? I'm, I'm not good enough. Then there's some disturbance there, you know, we're not truly ourselves or in our own experience really participating in our own life. We're just full of doubt. Mm -hmm. So if Joshua just said to him, pat him on the head, we're okay, all beings have Buddha nature, go off, you know, and enjoy enjoy the gardening, Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have really helped him. And it seems kind of almost cruel, you know, in a way, to be kind, when a monk asks him, "Am I enough?" and he says, "No, no," mm-hmm. but it's not cruel. It's it, he's what he's doing is challenging the monk to go deeper into that doubt, to become the great doubt, you know, to really embody that whole doubt until he knows from himself, from the inside out, not from the outside in. He knows from the inside out, basically, I'm enough. Now I know I'm enough. I don't have to get it from the outside anymore. I don't need validation anywhere else. I know I'm enough. And without that no from Joshua in the first place, There wouldn't be that digging in deeper to come to that deeper experience. Otherwise, it would be just superficial. Yes, you're okay. You're good. Off you go. So that's the nature of Zen practice. It seems like a pretty tough practice at times. But its intention is to bring us to that more complete, holistic, experiential sense of ourself in the world. When we if we ever take up koan practice, and I know it's not everyone's cup of tea, but to to give a kind of metaphor metaphorical story which I've made up, which is what it's like. It's like a snake is being a snake and it just kind of wriggles along the ground, right? And then this snake comes to a, a bamboo tube, right, and it's curious about the bamboo tube and what's inside there you can see into the darkness but can't see what it says so it enters the bamboo tube and then once it's in the bamboo tube it's straight and it's not a snake anymore and it's stuck there so how does the snake get out from being stuck right like being stuck in the koan how does it Unravel itself from being in the bamboo tube. Well, it finds its true snake nature again and it wriggles out. Mm-hmm. That's kind of like what Cohen studies. Right? like we're wriggling around, but there's some kind of. We think there's something better. Mm-hmm. We go we go into the Coan, we go into the bamboo tube, and we're stuck like we're in a little box where it's a straight line rather than wriggling. But if we rest in that bamboo tube, just be there, we'll find our own wriggly nature again and we come out the other side. But we're a different snake once we come out the other side again. One of the things I'd like to focus on too in this talk is some of the contemporary forms of we have of constructing life and understanding ourselves, which are typical of our life and times and our culture now in a in a Western country, you know, in the in, in the uh, in the, the the millennial of two thousand and beyond. Mm-hmm. And one of the because we're educated people, um, we're all educated into. Um, a scientific way of viewing the world, right? And science is a construct It's you know, based on certain assumptions and so on. But we tend these day to believe that science is closer to the truth than anything else. It may be in many ways. It's probably the best system we've got um, for understanding things, but it's a very flawed system as well and yet we put so much authority on it and and it shapes the way that we experience ourselves or understand ourselves and when it comes to biology human biology you know, medical issues and also psychology and and forms of psychological suffering, like depression and anxiety and so on, emotional dysregulation and how we deal with all of that. If we use a scientific framework, it's a framework which really looks at us as a machine, you know, and it looks at us as having just sort of causal, linear links between this and that. And that's its basic assumption. We're a machine. We're kind of a collection of bits and pieces. And if we just work out how the collection of bits and pieces work, well, we'll we'll all be okay. Take this drug or that drug or do this or do that. Even do mindfulness, you know, um, as as an intervention. Then you'll be okay. Um, But what science does... As William Wordsworth said, it dissects things into bits and pieces. And we lose our sense of being a whole. And it's very important that we're not caught in the scientific construct as well. Go back to the Heart Sutra again. See into the emptiness of every construct, even that science construct. You're not a machine, you're a whole. You know? You're not separate to life. You're interwoven into life. Mm -hmm. You're not just an algorithm of bits and pieces in a sequence. Uh, Everything's interacting all together at once. But if you believe that scientific paradigm and its assumptions, you'll start to think of yourself as a machine. And then you'll have a fragmented view of your own an experience or way of understanding it. Another kind of construct that occurs too in our culture, which is in the media lot, is around um, the challenging of old ideas, um, themes of political correctness, being woke, etc. And again, it's kind of the way these things are kind of constructed you have these sort of conservative old ideas, for example, that there is a truth there. That this is the truth, and this is the way it is, and um, and things are in rigid categories of male and female, etc., etc. And that was the old way, right? Which is kind of rigid and static, right? And then you get the new way, which is challenging. That there is no truth, right? Or well, there isn't even any male and female. Mm-hmm. It's like going from one extreme to another, not being able to hold those two things together as a coincidence of opposites. Right? Like around the issues around gender, you know, you could have Richard well men and men, and women and women, and that's just the way it is. But if you look into the research of it and understand there is such a thing as gender fluidity that sexuality is expressed in many different ways. And if you go down into a cellular level, you would probably find that there's no difference. At some level, further you go down biologically, there's no difference between male and female. Like, everything's empty, right? But that's a very, from a Zen point of view, that's a very delusional way of looking at things as well. There is maleness and there is femaleness. To deny it is to deny a kind of pattern of energy which is there, that the life actually has forms to it. You know, if we were to go that far, we should also say there's no cats and dogs. Right? There's no koalas, there's no dingoes, there's no kangaroos, there's no lions, there's no tigers, everything is one. Mm-hmm. But if you go back to... The sutras that we have, like the Heart Sutra, emptiness is form. Form is emptiness. There is a form, there's maleness and there's femaleness, but they're empty. It's holding two opposites together, which the conceptual mind finds it so difficult to do. Mm -hmm. But when you break out, when you can, when you get below the surface of the conceptual mind, into the experience of moment-to-moment life, you just intuit for yourself that these opposites go together. life You can't have life without death. You can't have pleasure without pain. Right? There is male and female, mm-hmm. and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Again, one of the most, perhaps the most... Um, uh, comprehensive Zen Sutra, which is in our Sutra book, is the identity of relative and absolute. And through it, through that whole Sutra, it expresses that well-known universal truth, right? There's oneness and there's manyness, right? There's difference and the sameness. There is emptiness, there is form, Mm -hmm. And these two opposites come together all the time in the way that life actually is. In Western philosophy, there was, it's referred to as the coincidence of opposites, um, which was a signature statement by a um, Catholic um, priest back in about the 16th century. Um, and that, that saying, the coincidence of opposites, was actually the inspiration. It was a form of words which was an inspiration behind the whole um, Renaissance period in European culture. Things blossomed when people saw the world through that that lens. Mm -hmm. But when we lose that um, and we're entangled in concepts, um, everything gets competitive and and fragmented and posed. So if you do Zen practice, either meditation practice with koans or meditation practice without koans, right? there's no one way, is you your experiences over time is that leads you to an experience of yourself as being fragmented, to an experience of yourself as being whole, right? and an, an experience of yourself as being something static and separate to something which is a stream. Mm -hmm. And you don't experience yourself as a thing, right? You experience yourself as a pattern that's just constantly repeating on variations as it goes through time as you grow older. Mm -hmm. It's a pattern like there's a pattern in a tune of music, in a melody of music. And you also shift from the abstract, where you can go from the abstract back into the concrete again rather than just being caught in the abstract all the time. So in, in many ways, it's like you become an empiricist again, right? You're kind of like you're really turning up to see the uniqueness and variety of things in the world. And there's so much there. And in many ways, we become childlike again. Yet with a maturity about it. But if you if you think back to your own childhood, or remember if you've got a, even if you can't remember this yourself, if you can remember back to if you've been a parent, you would have experienced this. Or in my case, I had a a younger sister. I have a younger sister who's nine years younger than me, so I was old enough to remember her childlike interaction in the world. But I remember we used to go up out on on trips to the country from the city. And I remember you know, my sister looking out of the window at a farm and going, horsey, right? And that, that child's sort of immediate wonder at this new animal that they've never seen before or just heard of in a book. And it's like it's real, right? And the language is also appropriate. It's like horsey, you know, I can put the word to that thing out there. That's an appropriate use of language. Mm-hmm. And horsey, doggy, birdie, whatever it is, that aliveness of being there in the freshness of each moment, we've lost that through getting stuck in the pale cast of thought, in this abstraction. It's like a sickly pale over everything that we experience. Right? And as in practice lifts the veil again, so that we can see that that immediate experience of life like a child again, and it's what makes all the difference.